as we begin this morning. Good morning to you and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we are going to finally conclude our journey through the letter that James wrote to those Jewish believers that have been scattered among the nations. We've seen James speak on many different subjects, and one of the recurring themes in his letter is that our faith should be seen in how we live our lives for Christ and how we live for those around us. Our faith should be obvious by our works. Now, we're not saved by our works, and James never says that, but our faith should be obvious, or our works should demonstrate the faith that we profess to have. And as we get to the end of James' teaching, we're going to see him go back to and address the subject of prayer. And prayer should be a very important part of a Christian's life. In fact, I would go so far as to say that without prayer, really the spiritual life will die. Just as your physical life is dependent upon breathing, so your spiritual life is dependent upon prayer. In breathing, we... we Inhale and we exhale, right? And we see this twofold aspect in prayer as well. We breathe in as God speaks to us through his holy word, through his Holy Spirit, and then we breathe out as we speak to God in prayer. So prayer is to the soul what breath is to the body. And when breathing, physical breathing, becomes heavy and clogged, well, the body becomes sick, doesn't it? And when praying becomes unpleasant or irksome or, or tiring, then the soul becomes sick. We talked about this some in our study on Wednesday night as we began our segment in the confirmation studies that deals with the Lord's Prayer. And we saw that God, the God who has revealed himself to us through his word, that he also wants to have fellowship with us through prayer. The Bible makes it clear that God is willing to listen to our prayers, and he wants to give you the things for which you ask, as long as we are asking according to his will. God is a prayer-hearing and a prayer-answering God. This makes the God of the Bible a personal God, because prayer is a very personal thing. It's a time when we can fellowship with God in a personal, intimate way. But prayer is also a, a corporate thing. This is why we have prayer times together when we gather for worship. So we're called to both a life of, of personal prayer as individual Christians and a life of corporate prayer as the body of Christ. In our passage for this morning, James begins with a very simple statement. He asked the question, is any one of you in trouble? Let him pray. Let's turn there together this morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 5. And I invite you to please stand with me as you're able for the reading from God's Word today. This morning we'll be finishing up James' epistle. I'll be beginning at verse 13 and reading down through verse 20. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 856. Beginning at verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. 
If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open it up to us this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through it, that you would guide my words That is always, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So once again, James begins by asking the question, is any of you in trouble? Have any of you ever had a time in your life when you were in trouble? Most of us probably have. For some of us, we might say that trouble seems to be right around every corner, right? There's trouble everywhere you go. How many of you have played a board game called Trouble? It's a simple little game, but when you're moving your piece around the the game board, if you land on a spot that's occupied by somebody else, well, you are in trouble and have to go back and start all over again. Country singer Travis Tritt wrote a song, country song, called Trouble, and he spells it out, T-R-O-U-B-L-E. He says he's out one night and in walks a woman who just looks like trouble. I've heard people say that the trouble is their middle name. Most of us can remember when our parents said words to us, maybe like, young man or young woman, you are in trouble. And we knew that what came next was not going to be pleasant. In fact, if my parents ever called me by my first name and my middle name together, I knew that there was trouble on the horizon. Jesus told his disciples one time that in this world they would have trouble. But he also told them in that same passage, he said, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. One little boy, when he was praying at his bedside one night, he prayed, Oh Lord, please take care of my mommy and daddy and my brother and sister, and me, and and my doggie. And, And oh Lord, please, please take care of yourself. Because if anything happens to you, we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. So James tells us that if any of us are experiencing trouble, we should pray. How do we normally act when trouble comes? What's the, the first thing we do or say when adversity hits? Is it that we pray? Sometimes probably yes. Going back to the previous verses that we looked at two weeks ago, we remember that James told us to not make any hasty oaths, to not swear by heaven or earth or by anything else. But do we do that sometimes when adversity hits? Do we pray, oh Lord, if you'll just get me out of this jam, I promise you I will do whatever. James says we should pray. But in the context of his letter, We should not be trying to to bargain with God in our prayers. Also, going back to what James had just said before, we are not to grumble or complain. We're simply called 
to pray. Our times of trial, our times of adversity, should serve to make our hearts more humble, more contrite, more dependent on God for our answers and for his peace. We read in our scripture reading this morning from Philippians chapter 4. And in that passage, Paul begins by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. How many of you are brought to rejoicing when you face trouble in your lives? Do you remember how James began his letter? He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And he went on to tell us that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And perseverance needs to finish its work so that, that we are mature, so that we're complete, so that we're not lacking anything. And in that context, he went on and said, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I think especially during these times of trouble, we should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And this is where James returns to now as he's closing out his letter. He's returning to the topic of prayer and praise. And I think we can see that James kind of bookends his, his entire message with, with these, this topic. Going back very quickly to Philippians 4, Paul also wrote that we shouldn't be anxious about anything, even in our times of trouble, but that we should go to the Lord in prayer, giving thanks to God first for who he is and what he has accomplished for us, and then laying our needs out before him. And we're promised in that passage that the peace of God, the peace of God that is beyond all human understanding, that that peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And isn't that really what we want when we're going through trials of life? We want peace, don't we? We don't want to be anxious. We, we don't want to worry. We want to place our trust in the Lord and to rest in his peace. So James tells us that if any of us is experiencing trouble, we should go to the Lord in prayer. And we're promised that when we prayerfully commit ourselves and our situations to the Lord, he will give us his peace. But Paul goes on to say then, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. So here we have James going from one emotional extreme to the other, right? He takes us from, from the burden of being in the depths of despair during our times of trouble all the way up to, to the merriment, to the rejoicing in times of praise. What did Paul write again in Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Notice here that our emotional experiences are very closely associated with our Heavenly Father. In times of affliction, we pray to our Father in heaven. When all is well, we sing praises to our Father in heaven. I would say that prayer and praise are two divinely given prescriptions for us that are used to meet the needs of the child of God, whether we're in distress or whether we're in times of delight. This thought takes me to Paul's words in Ephesians 5, verses 19 and 20 where he says, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Psalms has many, many songs of praise. Psalm 96 begins with these words. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Psalm 92 begins by saying, It is good to praise the Lord and to make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Psalm 147, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. So James tells us that when we're happy, don't just sit there in our happiness, but give praise, even in song, to the one who has made you glad. Now some of you may be sitting there saying, well, I don't sing very well and no one wants to hear my voice. But you know what? The Bible simply says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Doesn't have to be in tune. Okay? Doesn't matter if anybody else hears it. We sing to the one who has made us glad. The next section that James addresses is one that's been a difficult one for many to understand. James tells us that if any of us is sick, they should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. We know that there have been many who have been prayed over in the past who have been healed. There have been many as well who have been prayed over, who have been anointed with oil, who have had hands laid on them, and yet they were not healed. The Bible teaches us that with God all things are possible. The scriptures tell us that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I don't know about you, but I have a very big imagination. James' focus here is on what the church can do and what the church is called to do when we pray in the name of Jesus. He is focused on what a Bible-believing church could and should do when someone is sick. We should pray that God will raise them up. And he gives us really four steps in this process of praying for the sick. Step number one, the sick person calls for the elders or leaders of the church. Now, in the New Testament, this word in the Greek, this word for sick, is actually a very broad word. It can mean any kind of sickness. It can mean physical sickness, such as having a cold or, or, or having cancer or even having a, a broken arm or a leg. It can mean mental sickness, such as depression. It can mean emotional sickness, someone who, who is grieving, mourning. It can mean spiritual sickness, someone who is out of step with the Lord. So this word is much broader than what we usually think of when we think of the word sick. It's referring to any sickness that has just become too much for someone to bear. Have any of you ever been there? Probably most of us have. Well, the leaders of the church are called to pray, and they're called for two reasons. One, they represent the church, they represent the Lord, and secondly, they should know how to pray. Step two, the elders go to the sick person. 
Notice that's in the plural. They go together. There is strength in numbers. There is also comfort in numbers. And by going in person, we are also communicating to that person that we are sincere. Right? We could send them a card, and don't get me wrong, sending cards is a wonderful thing to do to comfort someone. We can make a phone call to them, but a personal visit to pray with someone, that carries a lot of weight. It says we really care. Step number three, the leaders pray and anoint the person with oil. When the leaders show up, James tells them to anoint the sick person with oil. The word literally means to rub the oil on them. Most likely back then it was olive oil that was used. Olive oil back then had many different purposes. If an animal was wounded, they were anointed with oil to, to soothe the pain and to help cure the wound. People used olive oil for cosmetic reasons. Psalm 104, verse 15, says that God gives us oil to make a man's or a woman's face shine. Men were anointed with oil if they were being placed in office. Priests, prophets, were referred to as anointed ones. Kings were anointed when they were put in office. Um, oil is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit, if you didn't know that. James says we are to use it when we pray for someone, and that when we do, we must always pray in the name of Jesus. This is a reminder to us that it's not the elders, it's not the oil, and it's not the church that heals. It's Jesus that heals. Step number four, healing comes. Verse 15 is a very powerful verse. It says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. James refers to this as the prayer offered in faith. And this is the only time that that actual phrase is mentioned in the New Testament. Now the text doesn't say about how that healing will come about. It doesn't rule out medical care. Healing is healing, and God is in charge of all healing. I believe the scriptures teach that there are two avenues through which healing comes, prayer and medicine. Whether quickly or slowly, whether by miracle or by medicine or by some combination of the two, God is able to heal his children. And God doesn't need anything in order to heal us, right? He created the entire universe out of nothing. We need to remember that he is all-powerful. So we may well ask then, why does he need to use people and why does he need to use medicine or why should he choose to use those things? Why does he use doctors? It's because he chooses to involve us in the process. In the Bible, many times we see that for healing to take place, People did something. That woman who had that, that issue of bleeding, she reached out and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was healed. Jesus told the man who was paralyzed, get up and walk, and he did, and he was healed. The blind man was told to go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. He did, and he was healed. When Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, he told the people, first of all, remove the stone. When Lazarus came out, Jesus called him out. When he came out, Lazarus came out with his hands and his feet and his body still wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus told the people, take off the grave clothes 
So people are involved, so we call for the elders to pray because God chooses to use people in the process. James says that after the prayer has been prayed and the Lord has raised the sick person up, that if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now there are some people, there were some people back then and probably many still today, that hold to the thought that sickness was evidence of sin in a person's life. We see a great example of this in John chapter 9. As they were traveling along, Jesus and his disciples came upon a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? But Jesus told them, neither. This blindness is so that you can see the glory of God. And then we know that Jesus went on to heal that man in that passage. But the thought of sin leading to sickness has been around for a long time. And in general, well, sin does lead to sickness. In the garden, before the fall, there was no sickness. It was only until sin entered the world that sickness came about. And we need to be very careful when we make a statement like that to someone that your sickness is because of sin in your life. That is what Job's friends said to him. We're not called to sit in judgment on each other. James calls us to lift each other up in prayer. Now, can sin lead to sickness? Yes, it can. Sexual sin, especially sexual sin outside of marriage, has shown to lead to sickness with different kinds of diseases. We have AIDS, other things. A lack of trust in the Lord, a lack of faith, can lead to the sickness of depression. David, in the Bible, committed several very serious sins. He committed adultery with a woman and then caused that woman's husband to be killed. But following that, he began to feel the effect on his physical body. Listen to how he describes it. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover it up. I said, I will confess my sin to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Can guilt and sin do that to us? Can they make us sick? Absolutely they can. It happened to David, and it can happen to us. This is one of the reasons why we ask some questions as elders before anointing someone with oil and praying for their healing. In our ministerial acts book, we ask the question, are there sins of which you are conscious that should be confessed before you, we anoint you with oil? And then we always ask them, will you accept God's answer to our prayers? And we ask that because for whatever reason, the Lord does not choose to heal everyone who asks for healing. In the book of Timothy, Paul left Trophimus in the city of Miletus, and he was very sick. Luke, the doctor, was even there with him. And I have no doubt that they prayed over him, but he was still sick when he left. The apostle Paul went through this ordeal himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul wrote these words. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. The Lord had revealed some amazing things to Paul. And he said, to keep me from becoming conceited, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to torment me. And Paul says, three times I prayed with the Lord to take this away from me. But it never happened. And he says, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now there's been much debate on what this thorn in the flesh was for Paul. But whatever it may have been, Paul prayed for it to be removed, but the Lord never removed it. He was called to just rest in the grace of God, even in the midst of his affliction. James goes on to say that we should confess our sins to each other so we can pray for each other and be healed. Now this is where the Roman Catholic Church has come up with their practice of confessing sins to a priest. And the priest then offers up the prayers to God. He prays for them and then gives them some sort of penance to do that's supposedly appropriate for the seriousness of their sins. Well, that is not what James is referring to here. James is giving us a means of accountability to each other and to God. If you confess your sin to a brother or sister in the Lord, you're not asking for their forgiveness. I, let me preface that. Unless you have sinned directly against them, then you're asking for their forgiveness. But when you confess your sin in this context to a brother or sister in the Lord, you're asking for them to pray for you and to help hold you accountable in the future. There's great strength, there's great comfort in accountability. And in this context, James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It is effective for healing, not only physical healing, but emotional healing and spiritual healing as well. And then he gives us the example of Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah told King Ahab, he said, As long as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And we know that that happened. There wasn't any rain for three and a half years. And then at the end of chapter 18, after that confrontation with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah up on Mount Carmel, Elijah told Ahab, You better get down from the hill because it's going to rain. The rain is coming, and it did come. This was the powerful and effective prayer of a righteous man. It was also a prayer that had been directed by the Holy Spirit of God for Elijah to pray. Because Elijah was fighting a great battle against the forces of evil. As the people had turned to Baal worship, as some of them had even been sacrificing their children to Asherah. But Elijah stood firm in his faith in the Lord. And in the Lord's word and his prayer was answered. In all of our prayers, it's important to remember that when we pray in the name of the Lord, as James tells us to do here, we are praying for the Lord's will to be accomplished in whatever it is we're praying for. We're following the example of Jesus in the garden, who in his time of extreme anguish prayed, Lord, not my will, Father, but your will be done. There are times, for whatever reasons, that it is not the Lord's will for someone to be healed physically, and, and we can struggle with that sometimes. I know I struggle with that sometimes. But you know what? It is always, always the Lord's will that someone be healed spiritually. Always. And that's why James gives us this last word here at the end. 
He said, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now this final teaching from James, as with the rest of the letter, is directed to the church, to believers in Christ. Is it possible for believers to wander away from the truth of God? Yes, it is. It can be very easy for us to stray from the truth, both doctrinally and morally. The world we live in, the flesh, the devil himself, all fight against us as believers in our walk with the Lord. So if we neglect spending time in God's word, if we choose not to spend time in prayer as James exhorts us to do, if we neglect to gather together as God's people, his body, for for worship, for encouragement together, for support, we can very easily be led astray. And we should be concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Unlike Cain's response to the Lord in Genesis 4, you know what? We are our brother's keeper. But we don't bring them back through judgment. We bring them back gently with love and compassion. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brother, if someone is caught up in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carrying each other's burdens here would be equated to praying for each other, that James addressed in verse 16. But Paul gives us that little extra warning in Galatians, doesn't he? In restoring our brother, we need to be extra careful that we don't fall into sin ourselves. Possibly the sin of judgment, and that while we're pointing out their sin, we are not recognizing our own. Someone has said that that every time we, we point a finger at someone else, where there are three fingers pointing back at ourselves. So James exhorts us to pray, to pray in faith, to sing songs of praise to God for his many blessings, to pray for the sick, to confess our sins to each other, to hold each other accountable and to humbly watch out for each other because Satan is out there, as Peter tells us, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As James ends his teaching on how to live out our faith, He goes back to this topic that he began with, and he exhorts us to be people of prayer. Because prayer literally is the breath of life for the Christian. Please pray with me as we close today. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for giving it to us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who has met with us today. I thank you, Lord, for the the support and prayers of the people of the church and that I know that this is a church who prays, who lifts each other up. Help us, Lord, to continue in that, to be people of prayer. Help us, Lord, to also every day see our own sin before we, we try and point out the sin of others. Lord, I can be guilty of this just as anyone can. Help us, Lord, to love others the way that you love us, to show the same grace to others that you show to us, Lord, to lift each other up in prayer and trust, Lord, that your will will be done in each and every circumstance. I thank you for the privilege you give us to come before you in prayer, Lord. It does 
give me life, and I hope that, it's, that it enlightens everyone here as they spend time with you. Thank you for the gift of prayer. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.